Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest, and we have a great show today, people. In fact, my guest, one of my friends, she's a wonderful camera person out there in L.A. Her name is Carrie D., and she always asked me who's coming on the show, and I told her this gentleman was, and she said she loves this guy. He's she's like he's like his, her favorite guitarist, and my guest is Doug Aldrich. I know Doug. Good, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. You've been a busy guy. I know you guys were recently touring, and you have a new album coming out, and a lot of I still call them albums, and it's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, uh, how 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 have you been? How does your body hold up when you tour and then you record? I mean, does it get to you after a while? It- it does a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's the the playing part of it is the fun part always of touring. The the hard part is is moving around and flights and and um checking in and out of a bazillion hotels. You can't even, you know. It's sometimes you you you'll go in after a, after a travel ban, you'll fall asleep and then you wake up, go get something to eat, you'll go. I don't even know my room number. I can't even remember it. <laughs> I can imagine. Or you, or you go to a room and it's like the, that was my room yesterday. That the, that that number was my room yesterday. But no, I'm a, it's I try to I try to do what I can to rest. You know, when I when I can, it's it's tough sometimes. And then especially if you got jet lag, going from various countries or time zones, it can be a little bit harder. But um, I'm you know, thanks to thanks to the music, it keeps me it keeps me healthy. Now, now you were born in North Carolina. Where did you actually grow up? I, pretty much on the East Coast. Um, I I was in North Carolina for a little while, and then we went to Pennsylvania for a while, up the up middle middle Pennsylvania, um, and then we we moved to the D.C. area in in Maryland, actually in Rockville, Maryland, and that's kind of where I started to get into music and stuff, really. And uh, lived in Rockville and Potomac for a bit, and then we moved to outside of Philadelphia. And that's where I went to high school. And then after high school, I bolted out to Los Angeles. What, what and, town? Uh, I've been there, been there since. What town in Philly, outside Philly? Um, it was on an area called the Main Line. It was a, area, a place called Radnor. Oh, yeah, I know. And, um, All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, you know, I went to Radnor High School. and It was, um, it was a you know, cool area, you know, middle class. Maybe upper middle class, I don't know, but um, but it was a nice area. People were cool, but I, it was very um, that area is very conservative in terms of you know like everybody goes to college and, and everyone's looking at jobs. And I'm I was you know a musician, so it seemed like the natural thing for me to do is to go to California. Well, I, I read that you started playing a guitar like when you were eleven or something. Your sister introduced you, or or something like that. I mean, how, how did you start this whole career? I, um, I had I, I had two sisters, and my older sister was the first one with the record player. And I say record player because I'm probably older than you, but um, we're the same age. <laughs> the, so, and I I got into music listening to some of her records, and she had. Um, she had Frankie Comes Alive, which was big at that time, and, and she had some different stuff like uh, Stevie Wonder, Earl Klug, and she, but she had a Jeff Beck Blow by Blow record, and that one was the one that blew me away. And I was really attracted to it initially just because I saw the guy playing guitar on the front cover. I was, that's, that's a cool 
painting of another picture that was on the back cover. And I listened to his music. It didn't have any vocals on it. It was just guitar music, and it just blew my mind. And around that same time, my younger sister had a classical guitar. And I just one summer decided to pick it up, and she had a little book that was with it. And I decided to pick it up and try to teach myself some chords, which I did. And eventually, I got electric, uh, a really cheap electric guitar. What's the difference yeah, that's between how it what's the difference between classic when you play classical and regular? Is there a difference between the actual guitar? Yeah, a classical guitar generally well the old the old classical guitars were made out of uh, cat gut. They were called cat gut string guitars, and they were that's the really old ones. They would they would take you know anyway. Then the, the, it turned into um, where they use nylon strings now for classical guitars and, and nylon fiber wound by a really thin metal for the low bass notes it's kind of um like a bass note of a, a bass string of a piano kind of but um so classical is is um generally it's a softer sounding guitar it's not kind of a guitar that you would strum it's more of a finger picking guitar that's the general way you do it and then steel string is the kind of guitar you can finger pick or strum but i started with the classical and that's what she had and I was kind of strumming on it because I didn't know any better. Um, eventually, you know, years later, I actually learned how to play classical guitar properly. And um, that was that was really a great thing. And I, I kind of fell out of it just because I, I, I was playing so much electric that it was my, my fingernails wouldn't grow. So it, that's part of the whole classical thing. That's getting off the subject. The classical guitar is generally softer. Than a steel string guitar. Okay, so so you but when you finally got your uh, your electric guitar, and now at what point do you start getting bands together? And when do you do you ever take lessons, or have you always been self taught? No, I took lessons and I got band together right. I mean, that's why like immediately when I got the guitar, it was it was actually initially I talked about playing bass. I, there were two other guys. We decided we wanted to make a band in the neighborhood and um i said well i'll, I'll play bass and uh the other guy goes no no, no I, I, want, I just don't want to play bass said, all right i'll play guitar then so that i got a guitar and we he got a bass and the other guy had drums so we initially we immediately started a band and the first real rock riff that i learned was smoke on the water like about a million other guys <laughs> <laughs> So, so you learned that, so you're sitting there now, now, do you start getting gigs, or is it just a band that you're playing and just getting your sound together? We were just kids, man. I couldn't even play. I was just making noise. You know, I, I somehow I learned, I, I knew some chords because I had gone through this, this classical book, and, and, I, and then little by little, it's the greatest thing when you're, you know, when you're learning something, you're into it, and somebody teaches you a little trick or, or shows you, a, like, this is how you play this chord or whatever and it's just like your, your mind just explodes it's so cool so we, we we would just jam on like one note for hours we would just we would just jam on stuff and and make up little riffs we couldn't really except for the riffs of smoke and water and um somebody taught me how to play the, the main rhythm for purple haze so we jam on that for hours and hours and but eventually um you know, and we're kids, so we, we're not going out of the house. We're just, once in a while, we'd, we'd move to somebody else's garage or something. But um, 
it was a lot of fun and it kept me out of trouble when I was a kid. It kept me focused on, on you know, on something. Now, now, when did you know that it was going to be your life calling? I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, my, I, I got a lot more life left in me, so I got to figure it out. But I love, I love playing guitar. I never decided I was going to do it professionally or whatever. I just kind of fell into it. And, um, cause I just love to play, you know, so I, I would play and, periodically I would get an offer to do something and and here we are talking to you now so that's, it's, it's all been very good and very I've been very lucky and blessed it's been really a cool thing now how old were you when you moved to LA and and was it a scary move for you because I know you wanted to be a musician but you know like I moved back I said to the east coast and I come back and, and I'm in Marlton New Jersey which is 10 minutes from Philadelphia it's a nice area but it's not LA yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the difference you going from a, the main line's nice. Little, how no, old were you? And what was it like when you first moved out there? It was, it was, um, I was excited because I was, got out, gotten out of high school and my parents said, you know, yeah, you can go out there, but you we really want you to go to college. And so I got enrolled into Santa Monica College. And um, so I was there for, I guess I was there for a couple, a week or week and a half, and I got a little job as cleaning up this guy's, he had a, a woodworking shop, and I'd clean it, and that was my job. And um, I went to this, I went to the college the first day, and I just walked in, and I thought, man, this is just high school again. It just looked like high school, another, and I just wanted to get on with it. I, I just was very headstrong. I mean, the, I just packed up my little car, and I drove to, to L.A., and, and got situated. And once I realized that the school was going to take up too much time, and it, I, I was, you know, I was young and kind of, you know, a bonehead, you know, kind of, because I would definitely think it would have been smart to go to college. Now I now I know that, you know, but at the time I didn't want to, so I got a job in a music store and put a band together, and we started gigging. And by that time, you know, I could play guitar properly, so or at least you know, a start to being proper. So. It was it was awesome. I was on my own by myself. I had a little tiny apartment down in Venice, California, and and Venice was really um, it was really seedy at that time. <laughs> but I didn't care because I was just you know I was just on my own. I was free. Now, how do you go about putting a band together back then? Because now you know, and we've we've gone where you still said record player, and I still call them albums. So you know, we're around the same age, and we've seen a whole difference. Like when I did stand up comedy on the road in the in the late 80s early 90s getting a gig you had to put your kit together and send it and you know you know they never looked at the tape and you know you were spending five or six or eight bucks to just the chance of getting booked somewhere with a band before the internet how would you guys how would you put the your first band together was when people came into the music store or how did you get that band started there was um there, there was a, a magazine in los angeles i can't remember what, can't remember the name of it it might have been called the Recycler. I, I actually don't remember what it was called, but it was a little a newspaper that had um, classifieds in it, and it would have, um, you know, instruments for sale, blah, 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 and then it would have a section bands looking for musicians or musicians looking for bands or um, all this kind of stuff. And so in that thing, you'd, find, you'd often find ads that were like, 
know, looking for a guitar player with the influences of, you know, Zeppelin and Hendrix, stuff like that. And then you'd see some funny ones too. It'd be, it would be like looking for, you know, guitar player with transportation, pros only, must have, you know, pro gear, long hair, and um, no, no issues, you know. Uh, I don't have any issues. I got just I got nothing. I got a guitar. That's all I have. But um, through that paper, I think it was called the Recycler. I've met some guys um, down south in LA and uh, down by the airport, and we started a band. It was called Fighter. We just it was literally we we did half covers and half originals, and um, we we got booked at various clubs in Orange County, California, and then we, our, our gig in, in Hollywood was at Cazari's on the, on the Sunset Strip. What was the strip like back then? Was metal and that whole scene, was that at its high point right then, or was it waning? Because I know I've heard the Sunset Strip was just insane with bands, and people were packed and were out every night. I mean, now you drive down, you know, you go past Saddle Ranch, and you see a few tourists walking around. But what was it like yeah. back? what was it like back then? It was, um, it wasn't, it, it didn't, it didn't, the L.A. metal scene hadn't really happened yet. It was prior to that, and there were still some, um, some, all kinds of different bands that were playing, like, the, you'd, you'd find, uh, fusion bands and, and uh, punk bands and all kinds of different stuff. Um, there were some, you know, obviously Van Halen and Quiet Riot had come out of there, the original Quiet Riot had been in L.A., so those bands did have, there were other bands that were behind them that were playing, so there was rock, a lot of rock bands and metal bands and stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't blowing up or anything, it was just, you know, it was just normal, it would be like a club, going to a club in Jersey, but, um, but it was still, it was still really cool, it was a good, it, you could feel there was something going on and, and more and more people were starting to more and more come to our shows, and not necessarily just for us, but just to, because it would be a weekend night, and they wanted to hear some rock music, and so it was starting to grow, you know. Now, when was your first taste of a record deal? When did that start? Like, what band was that with, and and how did you, you know, how did you tackle that? That is um, the the very first taste of it was um, when some friends and I started another band. It was called Mansfield, and we had a by that time, um, we were playing a lot of different clubs on the strip, and we kind of had a good, you know, we had a good reputation. Uh, and we decided to go in the studio and make a demo. And that was my first time in in the studio, and it was it was awesome to hear, you know, our own song the way to be recorded properly. And and actually, it was the first time I ever I ever doubled my guitar, kind of, you know, like the way that everybody did later um, yeah, but I I did it because I wanted to get a sound kind of like Randy Rhodes has gotten so I doubled my guitar and it was it was cool we had this little demo and started to um, and then we went to another studio and, and finally somebody said hey my dad want, you know we really like you guys my dad's gonna he's got a record company or he's gonna start one or something and he he pressed some records of ours and we I don't know what we did with them. I don't know if we sold them or, or what, but um, it was just a, a, a LP that was a single on both sides. And 
it was really cool, but not really a proper record deal. Later, that was around 83 or something, um, 84 maybe. Later, we, um, I got into a band called Lion, and by that time, so, you know, I was a bit older and started to have a, a good reputation around L.A., and so I got called to be in this band, Lion. It was with um, a guy called Mark Edwards was on drums, and Mark had played with, in Steeler with Inge, and Inge had left, and so Mark decided to start a new band, and he found a, a great singer from Scotland for England, um, his, he's kind of both, his parents were in both places, but um, he brought this guy over and and he, they wanted to put a band together kind of in the vein of White Snake, Thin Lizzy, and stuff like that, and they called me. So we started this band called Lion together. Well, we started playing L.A. as Lion, and um, eventually, by that time, that was like 85, or 80, yeah, 85 is when I joined a lot of bands had already been signed in bands like Rat and the, the New Quiet Riot and Wasp and a lot of bands, you know. I mean, that's when the scene was really blown up. Um, but we weren't signed. We were different because we weren't really like the typical L.A. sound because, as I said, we were going for more of a, you know, I, that singer, Cal Swan, was the one that turned me on to the early Whitesnake records. They were really cool, blues-based you know, riff rock and covered it, just shred them. And um, we were kind of going for that thing. And that wasn't super popular at that time on, on the L.A. Strip. It was more glam glam sound, you know, Poison and stuff like that, which was, was great, but that's not what we were doing. And the record companies didn't really, they were looking for more Poisons and Rats and stuff like that. So we got passed over by everybody. In fact, we even did some showcases for... Um, Don Arden, we did a showcase for Don Arden. To, we would, we'd go through managers and all this stuff. And this guy, Don Arden, who was Sharon Arden's, Sharon Osborne's dad, had Jet Records. And we did a, we did a, uh, which was the first label that, that Ozzy was on solo. We did a showcase for him and he goes, you know, you guys are really good, but you just, you just need to be more evil. You know, you're just not <laughs> evil enough for me. And so I was like, okay, well, we can have a think about that, but we, we didn't, you know, we, we just carried on as the kind of white snake thing with the European rock sound. Eventually, after everybody passed, we got a record deal with a company called Scotty Brothers. It was basically it's a subsidiary. It was a subsidiary of Epic Records at the time. And, and we, we got this contract and we were really excited about it. And we went, went to our attorney and showed him the contract. And he said, well, you guys can't sign this because if you sign this, I'm gonna. I can't work with you because you won't be able to pay me because you're not gonna make any money. And we, we were really, we were really bummed out about it. We went to the office of the record company and they said, "This is it. This is the deal. Take it or leave it." So we we sat on it for a week and we just a couple guys didn't want to sign it and a couple of us like for me I did want to sign it because I just knew that we were gonna make a great record and if we got made a great record that it would work out, you know, and. We did. We made a really great record, but it just didn't work out, and the band ended up breaking up. But that was the first real experience of, um, you know, getting a record deal. What do you do as a performer? You know, because now you know we'll talk about you know your new album coming out and the, the latest tour, and you're with classic. I mean, great musicians. And back then, it seems like you were great musicians. But what do you do as a young performer? Because I know you're you were not 
old, but you weren't young, but you said you were a little older. What do you do when you sit there and you know you have a certain sound and it's a sound you want to play, but then something like this happens where, you know, now you're like starting over again because you got that record. You made what you guys thought was a really good record. And then all of a sudden you break up because it didn't really go anywhere. How do you keep your focus and how do you keep concentrating on becoming this musician? Well, I just, I just kept playing and kept, uh, I, at that time, I, I was teaching guitar and just all about I, all about music, you know, trying to learn and get better and better and learn how to be a better, you know, write better songs. I really, I guess I was, um, all of this stuff was just preparation. It's just, it's just experience, you know, and everyone goes through it differently. You know, bands like Guns N' Roses got signed at the exact same time their record came out and blew up and the record company got behind it. So it, it was just a matter of, you know, the record company wouldn't, they didn't really, weren't in business to promote bands. They were in business to, they would, they would get an advance from Epic Records, and they, so they'd make their money immediately, $130,000 or whatever, and then they would charge the band for studio time to record in the studio that they owned that was in the basement of the office. And so you got this massive... Yeah. To just chuck the record out there and not do anything. We did get Epic to make a video, and it did really good on Headbangers Ball a lot, and and started to get a good rep as far as what people thought. They just didn't know why we weren't on tours because we didn't have tour support. But the one thing that happened was we did go to Japan, and it was on a different label in Japan, and they promoted it, and we we cleaned up over there. It was really it was really awesome. And um, so to answer your question, after that that band broke up. I had already kind of been approached by some people for different gigs and had turned them down because I really wanted my band to make it. But eventually we just, one of the guys, Mark got actually the drummer in a motorcycle accident and, and that was it. And so I started doing sessions and playing with a lot of different people. I had, you know, offers where I could actually make a living playing guitar and be touring and doing stuff that I wanted to do. So that's what I did. So I started a kind of a my early career of playing in several different bands right after another. Now you're playing and you're you know you're teaching, which I heard you had like seventy students at one time, which I, you must have had an amazingly busy schedule. But you're playing. It was yeah, it was full time. It was full time. I had I had all day, seven days a week, every half hour, different kids, and then it. Couple nights a week, I'd have group classes where it was, you know, some of those kids would, would come and there would be other kids that just wanted to kind of check it out. So it was a group class. But yeah, it was, I only time I had was at night after teaching, I'd come home and practice. So, so you're sitting, play a gig. you're getting, you know, you have a good reputation. And then, uh, how does Dio come about? Dio came about in 1990 and he asked me to come, actually, Grover Jackson. From Jackson Guitars told me that um, he thought, man, you know, really, you should really check this out. Check out, I know you got your band and you guys are still kind of trying to figure it out, but go to, you should check out Ronnie. And so I, I gave Grover a demo tape of some stuff and Ronnie liked it and they had me come down. And I guess they had already been through a bunch of people and it was kind of down to, they wanted to make a decision and he, he we, uh, we met. And we went to the we went to a pub and hung out a little bit. Came back and we played for 
about a half an hour, and then he immediately offered me the gig, which is, I was kind of blown away. I wasn't really prepared. I didn't, wasn't prepared for that. But I was excited about it. I just was not ready to give up on my band, so I turned it down. And um, and shortly after, that's when we did break up. So I, Ronnie came about in the, at that time, but then later, um, I was working with Jimmy Bain on doing a, a recording session, and he said, "Would you would you ever want to you know think about coming and joining the band?" And at that point, I was like, "Yes, definitely." What is it like joining? I mean, you know, Dio was such a big figure, and what was it like in just the tours you guys would be doing now and playing? It's different. I know you guys play in Japan, but you got to ask you. I hear when you play in Japan, the fans are just like crazy. They know exactly where you're going to be, and this is before the internet. I just heard. They they go nuts over there. Well, they're supportive. I've I, I, I've never met. I mean, those are the, some of the most loyal fans in the world that you that, that you could ever hope for. And uh, I'm I, I love Japan. It's it's the greatest place. But the fans are very reserved. They're very they, they they're really listening. So you have to you know you have to at first you have to understand that when they clap they clap for a short time and they stop because they don't want to interrupt the band. And that's different than in other places in the world, but um, now it's you know it's changed a bit. Now it's a little more, it's a little more like audiences. But uh, Japan was. What was it like when you finally got to play for Dio? Because you know, I mean, it's something that you're playing probably in bigger, different venues, and you know, the guy's a legend. And as a guitarist, that must be great because you know you're going into a uh, a situation where people know the music and they already like the music, so you don't have to prove yourself. It was. It was. I mean, Ronnie was a legend, and I and I, I grew up listening to him. I, I had the first record I heard him on was the Rainbow on stage live record, and he blew me away. Richie blew me away, and uh, you know I had learned some of that stuff um, as a kid. And then you know joining the band, it was kind of a weird period when I when I joined the band. It was right. You know, grunge had kind of come and was going away a little bit. But Ronnie had sustained through that whole grunge period. He he had he had made a few records and got through it, but it was not the band was kind of rebuilding, and so they he wanted to make a real fiery record like the early stuff, and that's when I came in and we made a record called Killing the Dragon. So we were kind of starting up again. We we hopped onto a tour with Scorpions and Deep Purple, and which was amazing to be, you know, touring with these guys. And Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie's music was some of the most fun music you could, you could ever think to play as a guitar player because it was just great. We focused mainly on on his early deal stuff and then some Rainbow stuff and some Sabbath stuff. And then we had four, three or four songs from the record that we recorded in there. And it was it was amazing. It's The first shows were supporting... Scorpions and Deep Purple, and it was pretty much every show was sold out. So at the end of our set, we, we had an hour set, which was a lot. At the end of our set, it would be packed every night, and Ronnie would just be killing. You know, it was it was awesome. And then we went to Europe and headlined ourselves. Well, actually, we went to Europe with Deep Purple and did some stuff with them. And then we headlined the rest of the year in the U.S. doing clubs with um, King's X supporting. And... Uh, so we did a lot of gigs, and it was it was great. By the end of that thing, we were really tight, super tight band. Ronnie brought the best out in everybody, and really, he really made. You know, I learned so much watching him and how he commanded the stage and 
confidence. You sometimes you you know as a musician you go, what is it that why why do people get you know butterflies or why do they get why is it that like you know a guy like Stevie Ray Vaughan when the recording light comes on he gets more fierce or or somebody like Dio when this, when he's getting on stage he's more fierce than than when he is when he's off the stage it's like because other people they get they get nervous on stage so I was kind of watching Ronnie going this is this is awesome man he's just like it's like he he gets all puffed up he's ready to go kick ass. So I, I really learned a lot by playing with Ronnie, and, and if it wasn't for Ronnie, I I would have been still kicking around L.A. doing sessions and doing this and that. Ronnie really put me out there, and he really believed in me. Um, so at the end of that tour, we did a DVD called um, Evil or Divine. It was live, and it was at the Roseland Ballroom in New York, and um, it turned out to be a really good DVD. So you're playing with Dio, and then you know, as you said, you're just you're learning so much, which is great because I would think you would learn, as you said, so much because the guy's a, a front man, you know, and he's been with so many legendary groups. And you're right, some people just destroy on stage, you know, they just it's built in them. How did you end up with uh, going to play for White Snake? Well, during the summer when we were doing we were doing that tour with Scorpions and Deep Purple. Um, it was interesting because um, Scorpions came to Ronnie and said, "We wanted, we we're having such a great time with you." And the three bands, Deep Purple, Scorpions, and Dio bands, we we'd hang out together. We had parties. We'd have these theme parties that were really. It was it was just a great a great vibe and, and rock, heavy rock, metal, all that stuff was coming back. And so it was a great time. It was 2002, uh, two thousand two, yeah, two thousand two. So the audiences were getting bigger. Everything was good. And Ronnie said to me, he goes, look, people are going to be, you know, offering you gigs. People are going to be coming around, talking to you. And, I, you know, I really I really want you to stay. And, um, and I said, yeah, Ronnie, I, I want to stay, you know. So, but during that period of Scorpions and Deep Purple, um, I was, the Deep Purple guy said that um, Coverdale was looking at, actually, no, it started like this. Scorpion's manager came to Ronnie and said, we want to, we're having so much fun, we want to do a tour with you next year, and we're going to do a co-headline with, with Whitesnake and Coverdale and Sykes and who, uh, I don't know who else they were talking about. But um, Jimmy Bain and I were sitting there listening to the conversation. We were, you know, our, our mouths were watering. We're like, that's awesome. Whitesnake, Scorpions, and Dio, that, that's like, that would be a killer tour. And Ronnie said, nope. We're going to make a record. We're not going to tour. He, he said, you know, he had a lot to say about that particular situation, but he really just was like, no, we're going to tour for the rest of the year. We've already planned it out. Then we're going to go make a record. Well, somewhere along the line, um, David told some of the guys in Deep Purple that he was having a, he, he was checking me out, and they let me know that. I thought, that's weird. Why? They, you know, why would he check me out? I'm not interested in. Uh, for one, I love Ronnie. I love playing with Ronnie. And if you've got Sykes, you know that's great. I love John Sykes, and that's what he should be doing. But when he when he contacted me, he I said, "Listen, no offense, but I, you know, I'm not really interested. You've got Sykes. I'm I've got this gig." And he said, "No, no, no. I don't want Sykes. I want you." And I think they had kind of talked about getting together, and then they fell out a little bit. And they had a they, they had a, you know, a rough breakup, I guess. And, and so David thought for a minute, like, I want that guy back. But then when he talked to them, 
know, they, they, they didn't get along or something like that. And so he, I think David just saw me and thought, hey, this guy's what I'm looking for. You know, that's what he's, he's always had, you know, a blonde guy and a dark guy in the band. You know, there's always, that's what he, he did in the 80s. And so he offered me that gig and said, it's a two-month run. And I talked to Ronnie, and Ronnie said, yeah, go for it. It's two months, we can, you know, we'll start working on the songs and stuff, and then you can come come in when you're done, and we'll keep writing and all that stuff. And that's what we planned to do, but the, the tour got extended and got extended, and I have to admit that I I really felt like it was a great fit for me in Whitesnake. And, and David and I hit it off, you know, and uh, I, I did want to continue working with Ronnie, and I did go... To his house a few times and we started writing and it was just a very slow process that I actually couldn't afford to to do because it wasn't like a situation where you were able to make you know you'd have to get a you'd have to get some type of a job or something in order to make enough money to live so you could go write and um, and then I on the other side I had Coverdale saying let's keep touring and and it's it, so that was what I had to do. And uh, I was happy to do that. I was excited about it because I loved Whitesnake. As you know, I I had told you I, that my first band was like, you know, and that's just another thing that I kind of had a leg up on people with Whitesnake because I knew about the older stuff. And so at a certain point, I said to David, look, I don't, you know, I don't want to be in a cover band where I'm just playing other people's music all the time. I want us to, to write. And I said, to be honest, if we're good, if Whitesnake's going to be moving forward, we need some new music, anyways. So he and I started writing, and uh, and then periodically I'd go back and do a tour or something with Ronnie with David's blessing. But but that was pretty much full on Whitesnake from that from two thousand three. When did you start writing music? Have you, I mean, I know you had a few solo albums earlier in your career, but had you always been a really uh, concentrated in the writing? And what was it actually like, as you said, because you had that love for Whitesnake? What was it like when you're actually sitting down with David Coverdale and writing? I mean, you know, you guys wanted that sound, and they said, well, you know, we want the glam band. And you said, well, we play this sound when you were younger in your career. What was when? What was that like sitting with well, David Well, that was, that's, that, it was awesome, man. Sit, sit with David, and, and the first few songs we, we banged out, um, you know, we, they, they were, it was the seed of something better to come, but we had to kind of learn learn to feel each other out and, and how, it was, how it would work. And it worked out really well. It was really creative. But the, that was the thing, is that in the U.S., Whitesnake was more known for the, the kind of glam sound or, or the, the, you know, the 87 record sound. But in Europe and in Japan and in other places in the world, the Whitesnake that was most popular was, was slided in and prior to that, like come and get it like that that was they were more of a, a rock blues band like not not so far away from Tim Lizzie or Allman Brothers in a way some in some sense and um so there was this weird kind of like when we go to Europe we play this set when we go in the U.S. we play this set so we're thinking about new music and I'm saying we got to find a way to get back we got to find a way to, to make a hybrid out of these two sounds to put it to where it's a little more bluesy still got the riffs and stuff but um you know so that can so that we can fit to this new music isn't going to get blown out in Europe by being too metal and it's not going to get blown out in the U in the US by being too bluesy so we found that I you know t- 
talked to him about bringing back the slide guitar for stuff on certain things, and and we went for a more a little more bluesy approach, and it was naturally because of mine and Reb's and Tommy's, everybody's playing. It um, it was a little heavier, but it was still blues based again, which was good, and it felt good to to you know kind of head the band back in that direction because that's really that's what I loved the most. It was early Whitesnake. I loved it. So you're playing with them and you're writing. Now, why, why did you leave? Was there a falling out or what happened? No, 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 I'm not falling out. I, but it had gotten to the point where we had done a couple of records and I felt really, I was really proud of what we did and I'm very thankful for David. For he, I learned so much about songwriting and about how to be creative by, by working with him because he was... With Ronnie, it was very focused. We were focusing on a certain sound we really wanted to get that was a metal sound and it had to be a certain kind of flavor. You know, didn't wasn't supposed to be happy. It was like, it was a darker sound, you know? With Whitesnake, David, I mean, basically, I could tap on a bottle and he'd start singing. And so I, it was like I had this open canvas to do whatever I thought sounded good. And if he liked it, he'd start singing. So certain riffs, like I remember just I'd play something and he'd, he'd be sitting behind me. I'd have my back to him. I'd be playing this part over a drum machine and he'd start singing. And I was like, whoa, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck would stand up. But in the end, we did, we wrote 30 songs together, published, I co-produced everything with them. And um, it was really a really good time. I felt really proud of it. But he wanted, I, he wanted some time off after a tour and some friends had um, had offered me they had offered me a job a couple times doing this gig in Vegas called Raiding the Rock Vault, and I never could do that or other things too. I never had time for it um, because it was just I wanted to be a hundred thousand percent for David. But we we had some time off, and these guys said, "Listen, man, come do this show in Vegas for a little bit. You can go back to Whitesnake anytime you want." But it's really fun. You leave your stuff set up. You live in the hotel, and you can just go downstairs and jam every night. And I thought that sounds pretty cool. Not travel, you know, not going to the same place and having my gear set up. And and it was with some great musicians. So I thought I'll do that. Well, then David decided he hadn't told me, but he decided later that he wanted to. Um, he was going to build a studio house, which he did, and, and he got it finished, and then he immediately wanted me to come up and start working on a project. So I was like, great. So I started going up there in my off time, and uh, it was like three or four days a week I had. So he said, I want to do this Purple record. And I thought, okay, that's cool. So we started doing demos for it, and it was going really good. We got about six demos done where we would basically take the Deep Purple song and we'd stick it into the Pro Tools and chop it up and kind of like with he wanted to make them more song oriented so like they would start off with a riff Deep Purple would start off with a riff and then it would kind of go into a jam thing a lot of, a lot of times so he wanted to kind of structure it more like the riff and then the, the, the verse vocal part and then the hook of whatever it was and then go back to another verse and kind of structure it like that and it, and it also meant that we were going to write some solo parts and stuff chords and stuff but he told me, he goes, look, Doug, there's not going to be any publishing, no songwriting, because these songs are locked up. And I thought, that's cool. I don't care. But it's going to be fun to do. So we kept going. And then he said, look, I need you I need you full-time up here. And I had 
basically, to make a long story short, I had been through a divorce and had my son living with me, who was, who was I think he was three or four at the time. And um, I was really kind of settling into being a dad full time and um, had also a girlfriend that I really liked a lot and I was exclusive to. And I just knew that um, I couldn't do full time at that point. I could I could go up there like for three or four days a week. We were making great progress, and we were. I'd figure it out later. But at this particular moment, I really needed to focus on on my boy. And uh, my girlfriend was was there with me at the same time. And I thought he goes, "Well, move him." And he he knew my girlfriend. And he knew my boy. He's, he's he met them both. Um, he says, "Move him up here." Move him up to tell me what we got to do to get you up here and get you a place, whatever. I said, it's not that, TC. I just said it's. I really need time. I need. I need time with my boy. I can't because I knew if I was up at his place that we'd be working twelve hours a day. Well, that's what we do. You know, when I was up there, there was seven days a week. I, there'd be times I'd go up to his studio or his house prior to that, and I'd work for two weeks before I actually even went outside. Wow. It was like we were we were we were into it. We were just like hunkered down into it. So I said, "DC, I can't do that. I can't come up there because I'm going to be behind the computer." And I got my girlfriend, who's she's amazing, but I, she's not signed up to be a, a babysitter. You know, that's not cool. And it just got to be a little pressure, and I felt there was some animosity growing. And so we, I, I just basically decided one day that I thought it would be best for us if. If we, if I tapped out, you know, stepped away, and uh, it was, it was just getting a little uncomfortable, and I didn't want there to be. I mean, David's like my big brother, you know. He, he was. We had a lot of. We spent thousands of hours working together, so I just didn't want to see it go in a weird way, and I just needed time. I did. So I, that's what. I, that's what happened. Now, the new project, uh, well, you put an album out before with the Revolution Saints. How did that come about? And, and you know, how did you meet these guys? Because I always wonder, you know, you got, you know, a guy who played drums for Journey. You had someone, you know, from Night Ranger, you from, you know, played with Whitesnake in these bands. It's sort of like a super group, but all of a sudden it's a trio. How did this come about and why did you opt to go for a trio? Because <laughs> Dean's an equally amazing singer as he is a drummer so it was like okay cool we don't need to get the singer we can just have dean play drums and sing and jack sings he's great so that's what we did we did but it, how it came about was the record company heard dean singing and um wanted to do a solo record for him with him so they had um, this awesome producer alessandro del vecchio in and he's a songwriter very strong songwriter keyboardist and producer they had him come up with a bunch of material for Dean, and um, Dean. They asked Dean, "Who do you want to plan playing your solo record?" And he said, "Doug, I'd really like to get Doug, and I'd like to get Jack." And Jack and Dean had been friends for thirty years or something, and they were. I think Jack even wrote some songs for Journey at one point, and um, were, were with with Journey something. And Dean and I had got gotten to be friends from touring. We'd always play gigs together, especially in Europe. We did a couple of tours together, and Dean and I just hit it off. And we'd, we'd hang out. You know, we, we um, just got, it was just, 
know, he's just a good dude, you know. And so I was, he asked me, and I said, yeah, I'd love to. But then I started to get worried because I really didn't have any time to do to do it. And I'd have to work around David's schedule, and, and, I, and I knew that, so I was a little concerned about what I kind of signed on for. But then when the thing, when I got clear from, you know, working with Whitesnake, I could focus on it more full-time, and, um, and at that point, the record company said, we'd like to make it a band anyways, so we all kind of agreed to that, and uh, did the first record. How Were you happy with the first record? Because you guys all have written, and uh, how'd you come up with the name? The record company came up with the name, and the, musically, I thought it was I thought it was good, but it, it, the producer said, you know, I want you to make it sound like what you, what you did with Whitesnake. And I said, well, those were my songs with Whitesnake, and this is these are your songs. How far can I go with it? And he goes, do whatever you want. So I did what I thought was appropriate for the songs, and and um, I was I was pretty happy with it. I, I I liked a lot of it. I liked a lot of the solos. I I, I mean, I liked the whole record, but it, it was you know there's a different attachment when you write something versus if it's somebody else's song. And um, but it turned out great, and. It's, and the people were really nice about it. They liked it. We just couldn't get it together to tour was the biggest problem because I was I was in Vegas doing my thing and Dean was locked down to, to Journey and Night Ranger is, you know, Jack and Jack and and uh, Kelly and and Brad or that is Night Ranger. That's the you know. So we just couldn't get it together to tour. And then, you know, the the thing kinda of went away for a little while. So you couldn't get together to tour, but now you. When did you decide to do a second, uh, a second album? When when did that come about, and how well, did that come about? Well, well basically, um, you know, it's everybody knows that Dean had gone gone through a really difficult period, substance abuse, and and some uh, personal relationship issues that were that were it was just hard and, and ugly, you know. And he he was he basically. Had to, he had to, he lost his job with with Journey for, at that time and had to get clean and he did and it was he's he's done a really you know awesome job to get his his life back in order he's he you know he he was he had a fiance and he's still with her he's with the same girl they they mended their um, you know, because she got her, she got the dean that she loved back, the real dean, the dean that we all know and love, was was not the substance. You know, he wasn't on any kind of drugs, and he got clean, and he's still clean. It's been over two years, and um, he was getting the itch to to do something. And I think he and the record company talked, and and then they talked to to me, and eventually talked to Jack, and we decided. You know, we were all very proud of Dean, and we were, we thought let's let's do it. Let's carve out some time, and we did. So we carved out three weeks in April, where we all could meet up in Italy, and we all had song ideas that we had kind of set back and forth to each other, and eventually um, got in the studio and just knocked it out. And it it turned out, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I actually don't know if you've heard it yet, but I really. I really think it's a great record and a good second step for the, for the sound of the band. Now, how did you come up with the name Light in the Dark? Was that just something from 
Dean or was this for something personal for you guys or because it's it's a very catchy name and it's just how there's a lot of sorry sorry didn't mean to cut you off oh, that's fine I, it was it was um it was one of the song titles and a lot of the lyrics are you know kind of reflective of some of the stuff that Dean went through and that there's you know that there is light at the end of the tunnel and uh, that's what he that's what he focuses on every day to keep himself together and that's what a lot of people who have gone down that road and and gotten clean they have to do and it's part of healing too you know so. Um, so it, it, that's how the title came about. It was one of the songs. Now, what was it like shooting the videos? And they've done a few videos for it. I mean, the video, you know, we we grew up watching videos. And I talked to people who said... <laughs> I, hate, I, I hate doing videos. I hate it. Why? For some reason, because you got to... For some reason, you got to always wake up at like 5 in the morning. And then they want you to, you know, there's a camera in your face. I just want to play guitar. It's... It's the least favorite thing about it is for me is doing videos because it's just awkward. You're not playing live. You're playing to the track. It's just it's just weird. People, I mean, I, I like to watch other people's videos. That part I like, but I just don't like doing them. But those videos, were, we shot them in a, over a period of a couple of days. We did, a, we did do our first live gig in Italy at the Frontiers Festival, and the gig went really well. We took two days, uh, sorry, three days to re- rehearse. And we did the show, and it for the very first show, the three of us playing together, it was it was really successful. And so we got some footage there, and then we we went another day to this amazing home in the countryside, and we shot a bunch of stuff there. There were there was like a lot of different locations in this place, so we we did two videos on that day, and then yeah, so that was it. It was um, shot in Italy. The majority of the one that just came out yesterday, um, the, the, the ballad that came out, um, Wouldn't Change a Thing, w- was shot there. Now, you're, are you playing a tour with them? or Because I know you just got off road, the road with the Dead Daisies, right? Now, now is it, you know, that's bringing out the videos. Of course, being in Italy, you can't complain. Uh, are, are you guys going to tour the, the Revolution Saints? If, if we would like to. We'd love to do a little string of dates. Um, if we could, if we depends on what offers we get. We had some great offers from Japan on the last one. We had some great offers for for the UK. Um, it's a new band, so you know we where the, where the band is strongest is in Europe and Japan probably. But um, I would say you know there's a good there's a definite possibility that we, we will the record's going to come out in about a month's time, and we will see what kind of offers there are. At the same time, I do have uh, I have Dead Daisies scheduled um, that I need to work around, um, but that's kind of commonplace these days, you know. I mean, like Joe, like Joe Bonamassa, for example, does a record with Black Country, does a solo record, does a, a rock record, a blues record, you know. So he finds a way to, to do it all. To, he's always working. I, I'm really, uh, I'm, it's very impressive to see that. So I think that it would be great for Revolution Saints. I would love to do dates because we had a blast, and um, and now we got some new music that would be that would be super fun to play. We had a great time recording it, and unlike the first record where we didn't record all together at the same time the whole thing, this one we did all the basic tracks together. So there's a, there's a real fire to it, and we've played these songs together now already. So it, I would love to do that. Maybe some, you know. 
Dean and I talked about maybe doing some some charity stuff in the states. Maybe some finding some things that we could, you know, we could we could do Revol- Revolution Saints gig and and have the proceeds go to charity or something would be really cool. Um, so that's 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 something that we talked about, and we we'd love to go to Japan. We've got a good following there, and we'd love to go to Europe. So we'll see what happens. Now, how did you end up in the Dead Daisies? Because you joined them after they had already started, right? Yeah, yeah. They they had a, a record out. They they had done an EP and then a full record. And with with the EP was with various musicians. They I think they used Slash on some of it and um some other guys. And then on the the, the second record, they by that time Richard Fortas had gotten in the band and so they did a record with Richard and John Karabi and um, they were they were doing really good and, and I I saw the video for Midnight Moses and thought this is this is insane it's a great video you know because um, it, it was just really natural and, and felt just felt it was a good vibe so I actually told Marco man congratulations that's that that's really cool. He goes, man, it was a blast. We were in Cuba. We just filmed it. And um, that was it. We, You know, I worked with Marco in Whitesnake. And at that time, then, Brian Tishy was in the band, who had also been in Whitesnake at a certain point. And I knew Richard and John Crowley and I. And I know Dizzy. Dizzy played on one of my solo records. Dizzy's a great dude. And um, I know John Crowley since 1979 in Philadelphia. I met him. And um, when we were kids... I used to sneak into the clubs down in Jersey to go see him play. You know, it was like, it was my, you know, I, we never worked together. But so anyway, they called me um, in 2015 at the end of the year and said that Richard had gotten hurt in a motorcycle accident and asked if I would be able to fill in on some dates. There was like a couple months of dates. And I couldn't because I had already had, a, I had already committed to, um, a little Japan run with with um, Glenn Hughes. It was at that time, my everything was stable. I had gotten married, and um, my boy was everything was good. We were a tight unit, and I felt like I needed to get back out on the road a little bit. And Glenn had called me right at the perfect time and said, "Would you want to do a little do a run? I've got the opportunity to do some dates, and I really need to. You know, I want you to do it with me, and and we could make it." Kind of like you know trio like what I used to do with um, uh, trapeze, trapeze and uh, with Mel Galley and I, I thought that sounds great man that would be really cool and I said Glenn can we can we do a White Snake song that I never got to do with David and it would be really right up your alley and he goes yeah yeah so we we were doing the song Good to Be Bad and Glenn just killed it I, I loved it we never got to do it with, with David because there's songs that we did but um. So we were doing that, and we had a tour in Japan book, so I couldn't do the Dead Daisies thing. I said, you know, I, I actually said, what about, you know, somebody like Tracy Guns? Or I, I mentioned a couple people, and um, they ended up getting somebody from Australia to do it. Um, but then later, it was about a month later, they called me and said, would you ever consider, you know, doing a record with us? And because um, they, they, I couldn't really tell, couldn't tell anybody, but they said, looks like, Dizzy and Richard are going to get busy. They're going to go back with um, the GNR to do a tour and everything. And 
And I said, well, yeah, if, if you're talking about starting from scratch on a brand new record and we're going to write it together, I'd love to. I'd love to do it. These are all my friends. And pound for pound, those, those guys are insanely talented. I mean, Karabi, is the, he's just a, a great front man. And I know front men. He's, he's, he's a great dude, great front man. No attitude. No, it's super easy. And um, Brian Tissy is the... He's my bro. He's one of my best friends, and and um, I just respect the hell out of him as a drummer. He's just he's amazing. Marco, same thing. And David Lowy, who is the the founder, and he started the Dead Daisies, and I had never met, but I I knew of his playing and knew of the band, and I talked to him for a while. And we talked about me, he and I getting together in person and meeting, but we decided, you know what, that's not even necessary. Let's just let's just plan a start date. And we, we started the end of January to do the Make Some Noise record. So, man, that's awesome. So you, you And you toured them, so uh, that's so, so cool. So you, you, you have a lot going on. The, are you excited for the new record to come out? The, uh, well, the, Revol- the, the a, a new Revolution Saints record, yes, I'm super excited about it coming out. And it's, gonna, it's October 13th, I think it is, Friday the 13th. It was so funny because Dean, they, they said, yeah, we're going to put it out Friday the, 13th, or the 13th of October. And Dean looked at the date and he's like, it's Friday the 13th. You can't put the record out on Friday the 13th. And then all this, and they were like, why? What's wrong with that? What's, who cares? You know? And I, I didn't really chime in, but I was just watching this, these emails go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, Dean goes, ah, what the heck? Right. Cool. We, you know, can't, you can't control anything. So just let's just do it. Well, and so there it is. So it's coming out on Friday the 13th. Cool. And uh, we're excited about it. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This is a great talk. Um, now your Twitter. What's your Twitter? What do you have on Twitter? Actually, I don't even... I, I, I know it. It's, I think it's Douglas underscore Aldrich. Well, people... I think it's at Douglas underscore Aldrich. They'll be able to search me out. Yeah. And then search- there's an Instagram... There's an Instagram one, too. Just... Um, I think it's... Douglas Aldrich music or something like that. They, they can Google. Uh, so, so, yeah, so they can Google. They'll find a Follow him on Twitter, people. Follow him on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram, I'm Cooper Talk One. Uh, don't forget my website, www.coopertalk.net. You can find over 645 or 50 episodes. Also, email me if you want to suggest guests or anything like that, or just drop me a line. Uh, it's Cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my cookbook at stopthesalt.com. When I had that heart problem a few years ago, <laughs> I wrote a book. So it's 120 low-sodium recipes, easy to make, no pictures to intimidate you. You can get it at Amazon.com, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll autograph it, and I make more money. So people, go check out. Go check out the Revolution Saints Light in the Dark. Google Doug. Go look at his past work. I'm Steve Cooper. Bring your body. Bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind. <laughs>